Our text for this morning is taken from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Eric Walter. I'm the pastoral intern here. And uh, I always encourage people as we dive into God's word to be following along in the Bible as we make our way through the passage. And so before we dive in this morning, I just wanted to say that if you're using our Pew Bibles, that you can actually find this passage that we're going to be looking at on page 984. And for those of you that have young children uh, in the service with you as well, There is what we call the Jesus Storybook Bible, and you can find that kind of scattered throughout the pews. And if there is a particular story that I would recommend that you have your children follow along with us this morning, it would be found on page 12, and that story is called The Story and the Song. And perhaps it can be of uh, use to you during the service, but also later as you spend time talking with your family about what you learned in worship this morning. So we're continuing uh, our sermon series this morning called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is exploring what the Bible teaches us about how we can honor God and pursue peace in our relationships. And as Pastor Mark said last week, what we're hoping by the end of this series is that you'll see that the best that the world has to offer to those in relational conflict is nothing compared to the biblical vision of conflict resolution. And it's our hope that by God's grace, not only will you begin to see conflict in your relationships as a window to better understand the gospel, but that it will actually be an avenue for you to experience and to express the kind of reconciliation that God has brought to you that you are now living out in the lives of the people that you know. And so we began last week by considering this really important question, right? Where do we start, where should we start when we think about conflict resolution from the Bible's perspective? And we spent time in James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, what we noticed is that the place to start when we're talking about conflict resolution is not with the conflict that is outside of us, but the conflict that is within each of us. You see, at the center of every sinful conflict is not the behaviors of other people. It's not the circumstances, even difficult circumstances that you find yourself in. It's not even the personal or family patterns that you have inherited. At the center of every sinful conflict is our heart's idolatry. 
It's an out-of-control desire for something other than God in his will. It's a desire that we're willing to sin in order to keep or in order to seek. And what we saw is that for those people who are willing to acknowledge that the conflict begins in their heart and not in the world around them, is that God gives more grace. And he provides, in the midst of that conflict, not a promise to change our circumstances, but to change our hearts, to humble us in light of his mercies. And so perhaps last week, as you got to the end of the service, you left with a great sense of excitement and hope. You are excited to read the book, Resolving Everyday Conflict. You may have even been excited enough to join one of our growth groups, and you were hopeful that this time something would be different, that this time you would actually experience real change in your life and real change in your relationships. And despite all of your excitement and all of your hope and maybe even all of your commitment this past week, what you discovered, I guarantee you at some point, is that knowing where to start hasn't changed a single thing about your conflicts in your relationships. You're still angry with your spouse. You're still fighting with your parents. You're still impatient with your colleagues and you are still being controlled by your desires. And that sense of hope and that sense of excitement has now been replaced by a sense of disappointment and a sense of skepticism. And perhaps you're saying to yourself, listen, I know that this is true, but why doesn't it feel like it works in my life? And it's right here in the midst of this hope or in the midst of this skepticism that we find ourselves at one of the most important dilemmas in our spiritual lives, a dilemma that the Apostle Paul addresses right here in the book of Colossians. You see, the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians who, on the whole, were doing really well. And yet, throughout the letter to the Colossians, what we see is that Paul's highest priority— is that the Colossians would not be deceived or attracted to self-made religion. Whether that religion is pagan and worldly in its context, or Jewish and grounded in God's word, that in the midst of their own conflicts, Paul does not want them to be placing their trust in traditions or techniques, but in the power of the gospel alone. And if you're looking at a Bible right now, I want you to see how this is very evident in chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 8 and 23. And there he says, see to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. And listen to what he says about these things. These things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so as we continue this series this morning to provide us with a biblical vision of conflict resolution, what we need to do this morning is we need to be aware of the fact that we are tempted towards self-made religion, toward distorting God's word and approaching it as some self-help manual. We need to recognize that our ability to honor God and to pursue peace in our relationships does not come from our trust 
in biblical principles, but from the power of the gospel in our lives. That is where we're going to be this morning as we go and continue this series on conflict resolution as we look at Colossians chapter 3. But before we dive in, would you please take a moment and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, how it declares your mighty works in our lives. Keep us, Holy Spirit, from the temptation towards self-made religion, to being attracted to and deceived by technique in our relationships. Help us this morning to understand your word. Convict us in our hearts. Transform us by your spirit and give us a deeper hope and a deeper knowledge of what you have done in and through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Paul begins, sort of, by, by saying that your ability to honor him, your ability to pursue peace in your relationships does not come from biblical principles. And here's what I want you to do. To help us see that this is the case, what I want us to do is I want us to take a moment and think about how we hear God's word. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read back the passage to you, or at least a portion of it, and I want you to be asking yourself, what actually is standing out to you in this passage? Because Paul says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now here's my, here's my gamble. I bet that even if you're a mature Christian, that you have been a Christian for a while and that you are growing in your faith, what tends to stand out to you in this passage are the commands. Instead of hearing what the passage is actually saying, what you heard is, Christian, be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be meek and patient in your relationships. Make sure that you're bearing with others, and if you have an issue with somebody, you need to forgive them. The most important thing that you need to be doing is loving other people. That's probably, my guess, what you heard. The problem is, is that while there are aspects of what you just heard that are true and exist in the passage, that God does want our relationships to be characterized by these things, what we tend to do, and that this is especially true in America, is that we tend to take these commands that we see in this passage, and what we tend to do is repackage them and sell them to each other as biblical principles and techniques that we will now apply to our lives. And we find books and we hear sermon series, or we find articles that sound something like this, 10 steps to resolving conflict God's way, seven ways to raise your kids right, three commitments of every godly husband, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's this tendency, right, to hear God's commands that actually reveals what the Apostle Paul earlier in Colossians describes as a great delusion, that our tendency to trust in biblical principles is actually rooted in a devastating misunderstanding about our hearts. And so when we look at the scriptures as a whole, what we need to recognize is that before we can talk about how to honor God and pursue peace in our relationships, we need to first deal with the issues of the heart. 
And as Mark talked about last week, that the heart in the Bible is the very center of your being. And the scriptures are extremely clear about what the center of your being is really like. In Jeremiah 17, it says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so what this means is that even if I were to present to you the right principles and the right techniques to honor God and to pursue peace in your relationships, what our sinful hearts are going to do is they're going to take those principles, they're going to take those techniques, and they're not going to submit to God, but they're going to use those good things in order to pursue the idols that you want to pursue. That is what our hearts desire to do in our flesh. And the scriptures talk about this not just abstractly, but experientially. Perhaps you're familiar with Romans chapter 7. And who couldn't identify with how the Apostle Paul feels in Romans chapter 7, where he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that in my flesh I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, But the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's not just this misunderstanding of our hearts that Paul is getting at. He's also drawing out that we misunderstand the purpose of God's law. Because elsewhere in scripture, what we see is that the reasons that God has given us his law is usually very different than what we assume God wants us to do when we read his commands. You see, when we hear God's law or God's commands in scripture, what we tend to do when we hear things like be compassionate and be forgiving in your relationships What we assume is that God wants us to simply, in our own strength, just obey these commands. And this could not be further from the truth. God has given us his law, generally speaking, for three other reasons. The first reason that God has given us any of his commands or any of his law is to reveal his good and perfect will. You see, when God created Adam and Eve... He gave them commands in the garden. And not only did he give them commands, he gave them the ability to obey those commands so that they would flourish under his law and under his rule. And in this way, as they lived under God's law, it revealed not only God's good and perfect character, but it revealed that living under God's law is the way in which God intends us as human beings to truly flourish. However, when Adam and Eve, as you read in Genesis 3, and when they sinned against God and broke God's law, what happened is that our human nature was corrupted by the curse of sin. And that all of us, because we are, as C.S. Lewis describes us, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are incapable of obeying God's law in our own strength. And this leads us to really wrestle with the second reason that God has given us any commands in Scripture and any aspect of his law, and that is to reveal your and I's sinfulness. In Romans chapter 7, Paul also says, is the law sin? He says, absolutely not. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law of God had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And I'll just pause here for a second. This is why when you committed yourself to pursuing peace and honoring God in your relationships this last week, you found yourself in more conflict. Because God is using his law to reveal how sinful you really are. When we hear commands like be compassionate and forgiving in our relationships, not only is this showing us how God intends our relationships to flourish or that his perfect and holy will is good and right, but he's using that to expose your rebellion to that vision of flourishing. That you do not want to honor God that you do not want to pursue peace in your relationships in your flesh. And yet often what we do when we experience the dynamics of this sickness in our heart, when we come up against this real purpose of God's law, instead of humbling ourselves before the Lord, what we tend to do is exactly what the Pharisees did in the first century. We do what is called fencing the Torah. So in the first century, you may be familiar with this group of people known as the Pharisees, right? They are, throughout the Gospels, considered some of Jesus's most obvious enemies in the first century. And what's important to know about the Pharisees is that they started out pretty great. That their intention when they started out was to help God's people obey God's word. And what they did is they believed that if they could just get God's people to walk in obedience to God's word, that God would bless the nation of Israel and restore the kingdom of Israel to the kings of Jerusalem. And so what they did is they said, listen, we know that we cannot keep God's law. When we read it, we recognize that we're sinful and that we're not going to do this every time. And so instead of telling people, to keep God's law, what we're going to do is create additional laws and traditions. And in fact, they created 613 laws and traditions to be embraced so that you would not break the Torah, that you would not break God's law. And their logic went something like this. If I could just introduce the right technique into the life of God's people then what would happen is that they would start to develop habits that keep them from doing the wrong things and patterns that help them start doing the right things. And it doesn't take long in the Gospels to recognize that the result of that type of thinking was spiritually and socially devastating. It did not help anybody keep God's law. Instead, it helped people rebel in self-righteousness. And for those who could not live up to the standards of the Pharisees, what they experienced were burdens placed on them that were too heavy for them to carry. The Pharisees and the people that they were leading, they were taken captive by their traditions. They were being enslaved and enslaving others with biblical principles. Biblical principles that produced self-righteousness, despair, And maybe you've experienced this in your own life, unbelief, doubt in God's very existence. That's the danger of doing a series like Resolving Everyday Conflict, that we would accidentally or intentionally fence the Torah, fence God's word, 
And I'm here to say this morning, do not put your hope or your trust in a technique. Do not put your faith in a Christian book. Do not put your faith in a catchy sermon series. Do not put your faith in a conference or a program. We need to be beware of our own hearts. That as we continue through this series and talk about what we see about resolving conflict with a biblical vision, you need to recognize that you have a tendency and you will have a tendency to use whatever principles or techniques we discover to pursue your idols more intensely. And instead, what you need to be doing, like it says in 1 Timothy, is using the law properly which leads to the third and, I would argue, the most important reason that God has given us any commands in Scripture and any aspect of his law, and that is to point us to Jesus, our Savior. To point us not just to our need of a Savior, but to give us a vision for who Jesus is as the one who lived the perfect life, always loving God and loving others according to God's word. And so it's as we hear this call to use God's law properly, to allow it to lead us to Christ, that we can actually come back to Colossians and read it, and not listening for the commands this time, but listening for the gospel. And so I'm going to reread Colossians, and I don't want you to be listening for the commands, I want you to be listening for the gospel. Here's what it says. Put on, then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." You see, as we go back to Colossians, our passage this morning, and we listen not for biblical principles or techniques, but we listen for the gospel, what we hear is not a list of things to do, but a list of what God has done for us. You see, the gospel alone is what empowers us to honor God and to pursue peace in our relationships. But Paul doesn't list these things kind of generally. In fact, when we unpack this aspect of Colossians, what we find is that the gospel is so much fuller than what we normally assume. And in fact, if this analogy helps, what Paul is doing is he's holding up the gospel in this passage like someone would hold up a diamond. And he's turning the diamond so that the light would refract off all of the different angles of the diamond, and that each different perspective on the gospel message would be brilliant to us, that we would see its beauty, that it would dazzle us and captivate our hearts. And he's doing this so that when we're in the midst of conflict this next week, that we will actually be captivated, not by a principle, but by the gospel itself. So what does Paul teach us about the gospel in this passage? Well, the first thing he says is, you need to be captivated by the gospel of your forgiveness. I want you to look at verse 13. He says, bearing with one another, 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. You see how Paul is making this direct connection between our ability to forgive other people and the fact that we ourselves in Christ have been forgiven by God. What's wonderful about this word forgive in this passage is that it actually has the same root in the Greek as the word grace. It's essentially the word grace in a verb form. Forgiveness is moving toward those who have wronged you with grace and not judgment. But before we can apply this to our relationships, Paul is saying, Christian, apply this to your own life. First and foremost, God has a complaint against you. First and foremost, God is bearing with your sin. First and foremost, in light of all that, God is still moving toward you with grace. And this is, I think, the aspect of the gospel that we might be the most familiar with in Christianity, that as Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins so that God's wrath against us and our sin might be satisfied, that we can actually be moved toward with grace without violating God's justice. And it's at this point we're actually going to come back to in several weeks because it is that important for us to get. Well, what I want you to notice in Colossians is that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply describe the gospel as the gospel of your forgiveness of your sins. He also wants you to hear the gospel of your new identity in Christ. Look at verse 12 and notice the emphasis on our identity. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he goes on, compassionate hearts and all that jazz. What I want you to notice here is that this is exactly where Paul goes first when he talks about the gospel. And I want you to notice, this is a minor detail, I want you to notice how the word as, this little tiny conjunction, transforms the way we hear the command put on. This passage is not saying be compassionate Being compassionate or being forgiven makes us God's people. What this passage is saying is that in Christ, God has shown us that we are his chosen and beloved people, holy and blameless in his sight. The type of people that God is calling to himself to enable them and empower them to be able to put on compassionate hearts and the like. It is crucial for you to understand that you are not compassionate, meek, humble, honoring to God, or pursuing peace in your relationships by nature. You will be that and are that by grace alone. By nature, your heart, as we already talked about, is rebellious and desperately sick. That God's law condemns you as a sinner worthy of his judgment. And yet, the gospel message breaks into that and says, in Christ, though, you have received an entirely new identity. The same identity that we hear Jesus receiving, or or say, hearing, when he was baptized. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. 
That's the gospel message to you, to those of you who have your faith in Christ. And yet even here, Paul doesn't stop with the gospel. He keeps turning the diamond of the gospel and he says, not only do I want you to hear about your forgiveness, not only do I want you to hear about the gospel of your new identity, I want you to hear about the gospel of the kingdom of God. I want you to notice in verse 15, where Paul goes somewhat last. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. These words, peace of Christ, are and were highly significant in the life of the Colossians, because most, if not all, of the people in Colossae were Roman citizens. You have to remember, at this time in history, Essentially, the entire known world was under the rule of Rome. And a large part of Rome's ability to rule the world was founded in two things. They had an incredibly ruthless military. And two, they had an incredible propaganda technique that they described as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Christ, or the Peace of Rome. So that despite all the bloodshed that it required to actually establish and expand the Roman Empire, the emperors of Rome propagated the belief that the Roman way of life brought stability to the world beyond anything that anyone had ever experienced. You might describe it as the gospel of Rome. In fact, The word gospel in Greek originally comes from the type of message that would be sent out into the empire in celebration of a new emperor's birth. Kind of puts the word gospel into a whole new context here. And it's within that context that Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ, not the Pax Romana, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Paul is saying, do not put your trust in the kingdom of Rome. Put your trust and hope in the gospel of the kingdom of God. That as we have been reconciled to God through Christ, we as God's people have been gathered together as citizens of a new kind of people and a new kind of kingdom. And I just love how this passage is not willing to stay in the abstract. Paul gets really specific, right? He says, to those who are in the middle of relational conflict, before you can pursue peace in your relationship, you must let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You need to recognize that you are the citizen of a peaceful kingdom, not a rival kingdom. And in fact, I love F.F. Bruce's translation of this passage because it's super accurate and it's also really helpful and applicable. This is how F.F. Bruce translates this. He says, let the peace of Christ be arbiter in your hearts. Whatever rules your heart will control your life. And what this passage is saying is that before we will pursue peace in any of our relationships, we need to submit to Christ's judgment of our hearts and of Christ's judgment of how we approach conflict. We will no longer allow ourselves to be the arbiter between us and ourselves, between us and other people. We will not be king. Christ will be king when we approach 
conflict in our relationships. This is the full gospel that Paul wants you to hear this morning. The gospel that God will use to empower you to honor him and pursue peace in your relationships. Because it's this gospel that will transform your life. And the way in which it actually transforms your life reminds me a lot of the holiday Juneteenth. Some of you may not be familiar with Juneteenth, but Juneteenth is actually a federal holiday that we observe on June 19th. And this holiday commemorates the emancipation of black slaves in America. But what's important to know about Juneteenth is that the reason that this holiday falls on June 19th is not to commemorate the President Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. That took place on January 1st, 1863. Okay? But Juneteenth is celebrating and commemorating the announcement of emancipation to slaves in Texas on June 19, 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed into law, there were slaves in Texas finding out that for two years they had not been slaves and, not, and were not made aware of that fact. Because here's the reality. Even though slavery had been outlawed in Texas, the enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation relied heavily on the advancement of the Union Army. And so what this means is that that Texas, which was the most remote former state of the Confederacy, had not only seen an expansion of slavery, but by and large just didn't have a whole lot of Union troops in it. And so even though black men and black women in Texas were fully and legally freed on January 1st, 1863, they did not know about that freedom until June 19th, 1865. Now, I must admit, as a middle-class white man in the United States, it is nearly impossible for me to fully appreciate the struggle of black Americans. But I think there is something of a parable for us here as believers, as we imagine what it must have been like for those black men and those black women to hear for the first time of their freedom, how their perspective would have completely changed. Their perspective on their life, their perspective on their relationships would have been radically changed forever. And even though It's very clear from United States history, even though their lives would still be filled with incredibly challenging and difficult circumstances, in some ways still are. Their struggle would be happening in light of this declaration of their freedom from slavery. That their struggle is no longer within the context of being a slave, but in the context of being a citizen. A citizen with the same rights and privileges as their so-called former masters. I hope that this illustration helps you understand how the gospel actually empowers you to pursue peace in your relationships, because similarly, the full gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives is the declaration not of what we do, but of what God has done for us. It is the great new context out of which we approach relational conflict. And not just relational conflict, but our entire lives. This is what Tim Keller says. All change in our life comes from deepening our understanding 
of our salvation in Christ and living out of those changes that 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 understanding creates in our heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and even our view of the world. Christian, you are no longer a rebel. You are reconciled with a full and abundant forgiveness. Christian, no longer are you a stranger to God, but you are chosen. You are holy and beloved. Christian, you are no longer ruled by the corruption of your own heart or the world or the devil. You are ruled by the peace of Christ. And it's as we trust deeper and deeper in the fullness of this gospel that God will empower us to pursue peace in our relationships. And the way in which he empowers us by his spirit is by producing gratitude in our hearts. I want you to look at verses 15 and 17, or through 17. I want you to notice how the word thanks and thanksgiving are repeated throughout. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be Thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The shape of the Christian life is not obligation. The shape of the Christian life is one of worship and gratitude. Because it is only a heart that is filled up with gratitude to God, only that heart will gladly put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience in the midst of those conflicts. Only a heart filled with gratitude will be willing to bear with others and forgive them. Only a heart filled up and transformed by gratitude to God will cease desiring to have their needs met and their idols protected. Only a heart filled up with gratitude to God will rest in the knowledge that all we have is Christ and that he is more than enough. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The shape of the Christian life, especially in the midst of relational conflict, is not about obedience to a list of biblical principles. It is not about technique or ideologies. We are going to be tempted throughout this series that that is what we are doing, adopting biblical principles, figuring out new communication techniques, embracing a Christian ideology. And what I'm telling you this morning is that the word of God declares boldly that the shape of the Christian life in the midst of your conflict must be one of gratitude. Gratitude for this full gospel that has been revealed. 
of what God has done for you in Christ. So let's pray together and thank God for this wonderful news. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for all that you have done to save us from ourselves, to save us from your wrath, to give us the forgiveness of our sins, to give us a whole new identity in Christ, to give us a completely different kingdom to live in. Rule in our hearts, Lord Jesus. Move in our hearts, Holy Spirit, and produce in us the type of gratitude that enables us and empowers us to live out your word in our lives and especially in the difficult and broken relationships that we find ourselves. Be glorified, Father, as we continue to worship you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.